Hi, my name's Michael, and I'm a female alcoholic. <laughs> and it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'll enjoy it more after I get down. Uh, speaking doesn't come easy for me. I'm, I always get nervous. I have asthma. I have to do an inhaler, and that makes me shaky. And So I, it's not my favorite thing to do, but um, I really love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love Alcoholics Anonymous more than I lo love my own life. And um, I'm very privileged to get to do this kind of, I don't, I don't call this my service work. My service work is one-to-one -one with another drunk. I don't know what kind of work you call this, but I know if I hadn't been willing to get on an airplane, I never would have met my husband. I'm from California, and my husband's from Georgia. And there he is, and he hates this. His name is Ted. You don't... <laughs> And next to my sobriety, he is the greatest event in my life that has come to pass. Anyway, we are both very passionate about Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we, uh, we have to be. I mean, we both have newcomers living with us, had newcomers living with us when we met each other. And in 14 years, almost 15 years we've been married, only four months have we had without people living in our home. So once we had six newcomers, and that's pretty uh, unmanageable, so we don't do that anymore. <laughs> we try to keep it down to two. But uh, it's, it's a privilege and it's a gift to see the ones that stay sober and see the ones that, that don't stay sober, and you just love them so much anyway. We work with the treatment center, <clears throat> uh, Fort Gordon. It's military treatment center. We're losing our treatment centers. You know, and I'm that that chapter working with others is so powerful today because we've had to detox people in our homes, and of course people live with us. We we didn't for a long time have a treatment center in the Augusta area for alcoholics, and so uh, except for the military. So anyway, we had to use that chapter a lot. Anyway, we work with this uh, treatment center in the military, ESAP and RTF. It's Marines, Air Force, um, Army, and some Navy, and they come from all over the United States. And uh, I don't know why. I just we have the privilege of having them in our home every Wednesday night. I, I was, when I first moved to Georgia, I'd hear them say something like they did their inventory, and when you're talking to them, it's autobiography. And then they were talking about doing step nine. They confronted their parents, and I thought, oh, I think maybe they might need to get into the big book a little bit. And so I, I asked the counselors if they could come to our house on Wednesday nights, and we'd go pick them up and bring all these guys to our house, have a barbecue, show them that we're not a little glum lot. We can have fun and sobriety. And then we get into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, it's just been uh, so valuable to me because I don't, I hear a lot of things, I don't know if it's true, but I hear a lot of things about people going out on pain medication. And uh, I've had three back surgeries. I mean, I had a period where I couldn't, literally could not sit down. And if it wasn't for the soldiers coming every Wednesday night, you know, the book says nothing will so, so much ensure immunity to drinking than intensive work with other alcoholics. And when you have those newcomers in your house every Wednesday night and on weekends and holidays, that's pretty intense. 
and it, it has just really added to my sobriety, and I'm sure it's helped me stay sober. <clears throat> Last Saturday, I celebrated 30 years. <laughs> I just wish you didn't have to get chronologically older. <laughs> I mean, it starts to hurt your body. (laughs) Anyway, uh, 30 years, I just can hardly believe it. I mean, sometimes it feels like I've just walked into my first meeting. You know, I I just remember all the old timers so well. Anyway, uh, one of my favorite lines in the big book is the bottom of 14, top of 15. It says, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive those certain trials and those spots ahead. That sentence tells me two things. First of all, it tells me if I'm not working with others, I fail to grow spiritually. And then it tells me if I'm not working with others, I'm not going to survive those trials and low spots ahead. We're guaranteed trials and low spots. Uh, People have the misconception you get sober and everything gets perfect. It gets different. You You have ups and downs and ups and downs. People still get sick. They still get old. Some die. Wars still happen, and intensive work with other alcoholics gets me through all of these situations. I've been through an awful lot in sobriety. Right now, my daughter is dying um, of liver disease, and coming here and being with you just fills me up. I needed to be here this weekend because it's just it's just so hard and it's wearing me out. But anytime I can get with newcomers, I just totally don't think about her. Other than that, I'm pretty obsessed with her, I guess. But anyway, so I had just had this back surgery, and they send you home right away, and I got up Wednesday morning and had blood loss. I had a fever, in pain, staples up my back, and I told Ted, "I, I don't think I can meet with the soldiers tonight. I don't think we can meet with the soldiers tonight. And throughout the day, I kept hearing my sponsor's voice. She used to always say, you can be sick in a meeting as well as you can be sick in bed. Sick is sick. You're going to feel like crap, so you might as well have your fanny planted in a meeting. Of course, this is different. This is surgery. But I still just heard her voice over and over and over. So I thought, well, I don't have to go anywhere. I'll just go ahead and suit up and show up. And so that's what I did. I showed up that night, and we were on step two. What we try to do is one, two, and three on different Wednesdays and show them how to do a fourth step and hook them up wherever they're going, try and hook them up with the sponsor. Um, So we were on step two, and uh, we had about 35 people in what I call my AA room and uh, the foyer. All of a sudden, the guy that was sitting right here just stood up, and he started screaming at me. I could feel the spit coming out of his mouth on my face. He was so angry. And he said, if there's a God, it's going to take a burning bush to prove it to me. And I used to say, I, oh, gosh, I'm out of burning bushes. But the truth is, that wasn't what I thought. My thought was, I can't believe I got out of bed for this crap, is what I thought. <laughs> and then I said, okay, God, help <laughs> And then out of nowhere, I just remembered another man named Lee who wrote me a letter about a spiritual experience he had during one of my AA talks. It had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with him and his showing up at this convention. And if it hadn't have been me, it would have been one of the other speakers. But he uh, was the first one in the auditorium. If he sat anywhere else, he would not have had this experience. I received a letter from him two years later. 
telling me about his spiritual experience because he doubted it. You know, there is so much doubt with it. But the name of the conference is Gulf Shores Jubilee. And uh, they have a big sign, Mardi Gras colors, uh, saying Jubilee. And he just shared the whole time I shared my story, he just didn't listen to a word I said. He's looking down at his feet thinking about suicide or drinking, suicide or drinking, suicide or drinking. I always close my story with how I came to terms with the God I have in my life today, and that was through a tragedy. My daughter was 18 years old, three years sober. She and her girlfriend were leaving an AA dance. A man came up to him with a gun and kidnapped them. Brutally, brutally raped my daughter for over two hours, knocked the other girl totally unconscious. I hate the word rape. It sounds like it's just about sex, but it's, fair. it's about terror and it's about violence. He was drinking throughout the whole ordeal, thank God, because he got quite drunk. And at the point where he's forcing my daughter into the trunk of the car, somehow she had the courage to make some kind of an effort to save her own life. Oops. She swung around like that, and she, uh, he, she hit him. And he fell down, the gun went under the car, and she ran down the street naked, and she got away. But the road of recovery was real hard, and it was real long. And... Um, my, my daughter lost her sobriety. I managed to keep mine, but I had to seek God at a, at a new level. I had to seek God and seek God and seek God because everything that I knew about God <laughs> went out the window. So um, I've had many spiritual experience, many spiritual experiences, several little ones, then one big one. And this is what I'm going to tell you about the God that I, I have today. And all I know is that God is good and good is God. And if it's not good, it's not of God. You know, that man was acting on his free will and my daughter was just a victim. So if we didn't have free will, we wouldn't all be sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or coming to these conventions. We'd all be perfect people. And that came through a member of this this program and it, it just, I felt that spiritual release and I knew he was telling me the truth. So I was sharing about my daughter's rape, and for some reason, he said this force started to pull, push his head up. He couldn't keep it down, Lee. And uh, finally, his head came all the way up where he looked at me, the speaker, opened his eyes and looked at me on the stage. And, you know, where you sit changes how things look. And my body was blocking the whole part of the sign that said Juba, and the only part he could see was his name, Lee, L-E-E. So he looks up. I'm saying, God is good. Good is God. He looks up, and it's, Lee, I'm talking to you. And uh, that was his spiritual experience, and his life changed from that day on. And so I was sharing this story with Lee, who's sitting next to me, very hostile, and um, I always look around to see if there's any bushes in the room. This is the honest God truth. We have a couch, and there's a bush on both sides. We have to move everything to get all these people in the room. We have one little corner where there's a halogen lamp. Somebody pushed one of the bushes in the corner, and I'm saying, <laughs> this is the honest God truth. I'm saying, God is good, and good is God. The halogen lamp caught on fire, and the bush caught on fire. <laughs> I've got a burning bush. You know, I, I cannot believe God's timing. <laughs> it was, and, and Lee just jumped up and screamed, O-S-H-I-T. <laughs> so, um, 
It was a lot of havoc. Um, all the soldiers got up and put the fire out, got the, everything out, got the smoke out, pretty much. We all came back and we sat down. And up until that point, I forgot all about his spiritual experience and his burning bush thing. All I know is my house is on fire. But we come back into the room and I sat down. And as soon as I sat down, I, I that thought and, and I got these butterflies in my stomach and I went, oh my God. My God, he demanded a burning bush, and God delivered it. And you could feel the energy go around the room that every soldier, and every soldier got it, and it came back to me. It was the most amazing, amazing feeling that I have ever had. And uh, the whole point of this story is I could have missed that. I could have missed that. I could have used my surgery as an excuse to stay in bed and I would have missed that. There's not a chemical you can put in your body that feels like a spiritual experience. And it wasn't just Lee's spiritual experience. It was all of ours. And um, <clears throat> these soldiers were all so pumped up, and they go back to the treatment center, and treatment center so impressed with this group of soldiers that they started busing them over to our house. We used to have to go pick them up. Now they bus them over, and it's very nice that we don't have to pick them up, but this is a big white bus. It looks like a prison bus that you see on the freeway. <laughs> Prisoners get off, and they go pick up the trash and stuff like that. The soldiers do not wear a uniform because they don't want any rank involved in, in their recovery, so they don't wear uniforms, and some of them look like, well, some of them look like oodlums, some of them look like... Beach Boys, piercings, tattoos, these weird haircuts. They start piling out of the bus. And, um, I, you know, I just don't know what the neighbors think. All I know is this: we live on a little cul-de-sac, and here comes this big, white, loud bus, and it goes all the way down, circles the cul-de-sac, comes all the way up to our house and drops off all these guys. Seven or eight years this has been going on, without fail, every Wednesday night. And not once has one of the neighbors had the courage to ask me, what goes on in your house on Wednesday night? I think if that was going on across the street, you know, I'd walk over and ask somebody, hey, you having a Bible study or something? Can I come? I don't know. But nobody's had the courage to ask, so I haven't had to break anybody's anonymity. But I am just so thankful for that experience. I am so very thankful. When I crawled through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, let's see, over 30 years ago, I had a formal ninth grade education. I didn't know how to work. I lived on welfare. I was reduced to prostitution, and I was a thief. And all of this was before I took that first drink at the age of 25. After I took that first drink at the age of 25, I immediately went downhill. <laughs> Okay, you guys, how, how much worse can it get? <laughs> but I always swore when I was grow, growing up, I swore I wasn't going to be an alcoholic like my mom. I wasn't going to be an alcoholic like my mom. That's how come I didn't pick up a drink till I was 25. And I am so grateful I finally picked up that drink and found out what was wrong with me. Um, my mom and I both tried to recover from this disease through the psychiatric effort. We went to the same psychiatrist, but at different times, and the result was nil, but the good news is that today that psychiatrist is a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
My mom and I both tried to recover from this disease through the religious effort, different times in different congregations, but the result was the same. And believe it or not, today that very same minister that counseled me is a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) And I like to joke around and say I think we probably drove these two men to drink. But the truth is my mom slept with the psychiatrist and I slept with the minister. My sponsor said that's not exactly AA's idea of a spiritual experience. (laughs) But I know one thing, that psychiatrist, that minister, and myself are perfect examples that AA works when other things fail. A little bit about my background. I'm Irish, German, and Cherokee. I'm illegitimate. Being born out of wedlock today is not a big deal, but when I was a little girl growing up, it was. And my childhood is pretty appalling. So I want to tell you... In my mom's defense, I want to tell you a little bit about her childhood, because as bad as mine was, my mom's was worse. And this program gave me the ability to have a very loving relationship with my mother, even though she couldn't quit drinking. And I lost my mom about 15 years ago. She died of lung cancer. And I had the opportunity to practice love and service at home. We had hospice come in, and my mom actually got to die with a little bit of dignity. And I had to watch her drink on top of morphine up until the day she could no longer swallow. But this program gave me the ability to get in bed with her, hold her all night, and just love her unconditionally, just love her unconditionally, even though she was drinking and doing drugs. I just, the gifts of this program is just, it just amazes me. And I developed a wonderful relationship with my mom before she passed. And I really miss her a lot today. But my mom came from an alcoholic background, and when she was 13, her mother was murdered in a drunken brawl. A drunk slit my grandmother's throat. So that left my mom out on the streets at the age of 13 trying to raise herself because her father was in a chain gang, whatever that is. I'm sure it's some kind of jail. Um, She had her first baby when she was 14 which she gave up for adoption, then she had me. She did everything in her power to keep me. She later met this man, got married had three boys. We all moved to California. That marriage soon ended in divorce, and my stepfather moved back to Colorado. So that left my mom out in California trying to raise four little kids, and we were raised on welfare. We were raised in extreme, extreme poverty, always having lights, gas, telephones turned off, being evicted, and having to sleep in cars. And then I had to deal with my mom's alcoholism, I had to deal with her prostitution, and I had to deal with all of her suicide attempts. When I was 12, my mom got pregnant again. This time she sent my three younger brothers to live with their real dad in Colorado. Now, my three brothers are my very best friends. When you sleep in a car, you don't make very many friends. So my brothers were my friends. So I feel like at the age of 12, I already had all these feelings that I later brought with me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And those feelings were of low self-worth, low self-esteem, not equal to and just not good enough. And that was a direct result of all that poverty. The drunken psychiatrist pointed out to me that I had issues of abandonment. You know, my I never knew my real dad. My stepdad went away, my three brothers went away, and my mom's always trying to kill herself. And because of some other childhood experiences, I would say I'm a fear-based person. I have always been afraid of people, places, and things. And the two very important things I learned when I got to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is, first of all, I learned that feelings are not facts. 
And all those things I used to think about myself were not the truth. And best of all, I learned how to walk through fear. And I learned that every time I walk through fear, I'm actually exercising faith. And this last uh, 14 years, I lose count of time, I've walked through one of my biggest fears, aside from standing up here and talking, it's getting on airplanes. It took me 12 and a half years of sobriety to get on an airplane. And I found out that I'm not afraid of flying. I'm afraid of crashing. (laughs) My sponsor told me I'd better be clear of what my fear was when I was asking God to remove it. But I hear things in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that, you know, are not in the big book. And so what that, what some of these things you hear um, are just people's opinions. Uh, you know, I get up here and I got a lot of opinions. But if I give, if I quote a page, I do quote pages because when I quote a page, I want you to know that you can take it to the bank. It's in the book. Otherwise, anything else I say is just my opinion and you can do whatever you want with it. But, um, just had a little brain thing. Anyway, the one thing I used to hear all the time in meetings was you could not have fear and faith at the same time. That if you had fear, you didn't have any faith. And I could not figure out what I was doing wrong in my program. Because I'd worked these steps as hard as I could work these steps. I've had many spiritual experiences. But I still had all this overwhelming fear. And finally I went up to one of these guys. He was kind of like a guru in our area. And I asked him, I said, well, why, why do I still have all this fear? And he told me in the most arrogant, smug way, he said, it sounds to me like you haven't taken a thorough third step. Today I know I had taken a thorough third step. For me, it's a process. It's not just a words or a prayer. It's process. It's an action. For me to take a thorough third step is I have to take those actions of four through nine. That's, that's the process for me. Um, finally, I went over to one of these uh, old-timers that was instrumental in my sobriety, and I was crying on his shoulder. I was really telling on this other guy. <laughs> he said, I didn't take a thorough third step because I'm still afraid. <laughs> and basically, Bill said, Michael, nowhere in the big book does it say you cannot have fear and faith at the same time. He took me to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he pointed out a sentence to me. And that sentence is on page 68 under the fear inventory. The sentence says, all men of faith have courage. All men of faith have courage. And then he pointed out to me, you don't need courage unless you're afraid. And I thought, wow. (laughs) And then he also pointed out the sentence at the bottom of the paragraph where it gives you that little fear prayer. God, remove my fear and direct my attention to what you'd have me be. I use it all the time, and I'm always directed, always directed to help another person, whether they're in the program or out of the program. If I can just get out of the way, God can take care of a lot of things. The last sentence, the last, the very last sentence says, at once we commence to outgrow fear. It does not say at once we outgrow fear. It says we commence to outgrow fear. And I am 30 years sober, and I'm still commencing. But I can, I can tell you today I don't let it paralyze me. I used to let it paralyze me. Today I just walk through that fear. But having fear is, it, I mean, in the big book, it's covered in 10 and 11. In step 10, it says, 
um, you know, that we should do these daily inventories. We should look for resentment, selfishness, something else, and fear. And it says it's not an overnight matter. It should continue for a lifetime. And then it reiterates it in step 11 on retiring at night. It's a paragraph that has seven questions. And I use that as a tenth step. That's how I do my tenth step. I do my tenth step in writing because I did my fourth step in writing. And I answer those seven questions. And the very first question says, were you selfish, dishonest, resentful, or afraid? Do you owe an apology? Have you kept something to yourself which should be shared with another person? And then it asks you, this has been a powerful tool for me in changing my behavior. It says, what could you have done better? You know, if I don't know what I can change my behavior to, it's hard to change it. But if I write it out and I look at it differently, I act differently the next time. So it's been a very powerful tool for me. And then it asks you for some good things. You know, it's a constructive inventory, not destructive. It asks, uh, were you kind and loving towards all? Well, I give myself credit if I'm kind and loving towards 90% of the people because the other percent's covered in the first question. It says, uh, did you pack into the mainstream of life? Uh, you know, if you're in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're packing into the mainstream of life. So I've always got some good things to say about myself. And I think anybody who doesn't isn't being really honest. Then it's, it says for you to ask God's forgiveness and ask what corrective measures need to be taken. Another powerful sentence is it states there that we must not get into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to God and our fellows. And so once you've done the work, you've done the tenth step, if you had to do corrective measures and you've done them, then you let it go. You don't rehash it and rehash it and rehash it because you're just taking it back. And I know a lot of people, every time they get a new sponsor, they do a complete inventory and re-inventory stuff they've already inventoried, and that's just taking it back. It brings up all that stuff again. And so I just, I really believe once you've done, done the work, you just leave it. On awakening in the morning in step 11, it says we do our formal prayer and meditation in the morning on awakening. And that's when uh, I do mine. Ted and I pray together a lot sometimes. We always say the third step, seventh step prayer. We pray for God to direct our thinking. We pray to be divorced from selfish, dishonest, self-seeking motives. We pray to know God's will and the power to carry that out. And then I do a form of meditation on my own where I try to listen to God. What I do is I just try to give God at least, at the very least, 30 minutes of my time. I don't try and fit God in the shower. I don't try and fit him in the car when I'm driving to work. I don't try and fit him into my busy schedule. I try to, to take a half hour and just give it to God. And I just think about God. And uh, many, many things have come to me, not during the meditation, but maybe an hour afterwards, maybe the next day. It's just amazing how, how this time that I give God reveals things to me at later times. So anyway, I'm uh, 13 and my mom does have this baby. And I had to learn how to be a mom, and I didn't even know how to be a kid. My mom's alcoholism took her out of the home. She was never around, and I had full responsibility of this little baby, this little baby sleeping in a dresser drawer. I eventually had to potty train her, bottle break her, 
I'm failing in school because I can't get to school because of this responsibility. My mom is never home, day or night, she is never home. After doing my inventory, I found out the truth was I hated school anyway. It was not a big deal for me to stay home and watch my little sister. I hated school anyway. When I went to school, I was either an object of pity around my peers or I was teased about the way I dressed and teased about my hair. So specifically to get out of my home life at the age of 15, I got married. And the man I married was 18. He, he lived in the neighborhood. He came from a similar background. I have such a colorful past that I like to brag about this. One of my big brag. When I got married at the age of 15, I was not pregnant. Very important. <laughs> Very important. I had high morals and high values. I had these, <laughs> I had these two TV shows that I used to watch. Uh, they're so unrealistic, but I didn't know that. It was Father Knows Best and uh, Donna Reed. Uh, most of you are probably too young to remember these programs, but they were family programs and they just gave me these high morals and high, high values. All I, I knew is when I grew up, I didn't want a prostitute like my mom, and I didn't want to be an alcoholic like my mom. So when I got married at the age of 15, I had this wild idea that I was Miss Donna Reed, marrying Mr. Father Knows Best, and unfortunately it didn't turn out that way, and I believe the man I married was an alcoholic. One indication, his name was Johnny Walker. <laughs> What state does Johnny Walker come from? I heard you guys talk about Tennessee, Kentucky, all these states last night. <clears throat> I want to share a story with you about that sister of mine, the little baby that slept in the dresser drawer. Because when I got to this program, I blamed my alcoholism on my mom's alcoholism. I blamed the way I turned out on the way I was raised. After I got sober in this program, I took a good look at that sister of mine because she came from the very same background, illegitimate everything. And my sister was forced to move out of the house at the age of 16 because of my mom's alcoholism. She moved out. She quit school. But what she did is she took that high school equivalency test, and she had to take it three times until she finally passed it. With this test under her belt, under a special youth program, she went to work for the city of Long Beach. At the, AF, at the age of 30, no, she started working there at 16. At the age of 26, she retired from the city of Long Beach. She took her retirement pay. She bought her own business. She later married the head traffic engineer for the city of Long Beach. And how many years ago, I don't know, about 15 years ago, at the age of 30, she was awarded Woman Entrepreneur of the Year. Now, even today, sometimes I still don't get it. You know, same mom, same background, but different actions. You know, and the difference is my sister is not an alcoholic. My sister is not bodily and mentally different from her fellows. My sister acts, reacts to situations differently than I do. So today I get to accept responsibility, and I can no longer blame all those people, places, and things. Yes, I am an alcoholic. I do have a disease, but today I have a solution. And for me, part of my solution is being accountable for my actions, my past actions and my present actions. So at the age of 15, I got married. At the age of 17, I did have a baby. At the age of 18, I had to get out of this marriage because this man took me through a whole new phase of alcoholism I never experienced with my mom, and it's called physical abuse. 
He never abused me unless he was drinking, but he abused me to the point of cutting me up with a knife, and I had to have surgery to repair the damage. So I got out of that marriage at the age of 15, at the age of 18, and I feel like that's when I started on the road of being everything I swore I'd never be, doing everything I swore I'd never do. Hadn't even taken a drink of alcohol yet. I always intuitively knew if I took a drink, I'd be an alcoholic. But it started out with me being a single mother living on welfare. My whole life growing up, I swore when I grew up, I wasn't going to live like that. And there I was. Now, on page 23 in the big book, it says the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. So we're talking about the main problem being the mental obsession and not the physical allergy. So I know for me, I practiced my disease of alcoholism way before I ever took that first drink. And I practiced it in the form of compulsive overeating. I would shove food in my mouth instead of alcohol. And then I discovered that wonderful world of diet pills. And that's back in the days when doctors gave really good amphetamines. Methadrine, dexedrine, it's all all illegal today. I went on this diet for 16 years. (laughs) When I finally took that drink at the age of 25, I immediately had the physical allergy. From that very first drink, I had the phenomena of craving. From that very first drink, I had a personality change. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You can read that in the big book, and it refers to that on page 21 as a real alcoholic. Excuse me. I had a huge spiritual experience way before I ever got to this program, and it was equivalent to the one that Bill had in Bill's story. In the big book, it says, as a result of a spiritual awakening, you'll have a change in psyche, a change in attitude. It says you'll have this huge emotional displacement and rearrangement. And this spiritual experience I had was not enough for me to achieve that, and I believe it's because I did not have a plan of action to go with it. But it was enough for me to come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. So what I did with this experience is I sought out this church and I counseled with this minister and I told him all about my spiritual experience. I shared with him all my character defects and all my shortcomings. And this man assured me if I got really active in this church and I read all these inspirational books and did all this positive thinking and all these affirmations that I could be everything that I ever wanted to be. After I got to this program, I heard a speaker at the podium say, if you're alcoholic, you cannot think your way into right actions. He said, if you're alcoholic, you have to act your way into right thinking. And I'm absolute proof of that because I got really active in that church. I even became the secretary of that church, and I struggled reading those books because I could barely read. I did all that positive thinking, all those affirmations, and the only thing that resulted is I ended up having a torrid affair with this minister, and it absolutely infuriated his wife. And, the, and the, the, the rest of the congregation wasn't too excited about it either. But the one thing I'm going to share with you, you now is the one thing I thought I'd take to the grave with me. As secretary of that church, it was my job to handle that money. And when I handled that money, I stole part of that money. Now, at that point in my life, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt my only hope was God. And I turned to God for help, and I ended up seducing his minister and ripping off his church. 
So I truly know the feeling of hopelessness that they talk about in the big book. I want to share two stories with you while I'm on the subject of the minister. <laughs> the, first, the first story I'd like to share, it's because it's the first time I was ever able to laugh at any part of my alcoholism. I uh, got to this program, and I was incapable of laughing. And I used to hear laughter was healing, but I always thought my story was just much too serious. And when I got here, I hung out at the very back of the room, and I have a friend named Teddy, and she calls the back of the room the half-measure section or the denial section. And I didn't hang out back there for either of those reasons. I hung out back there because I couldn't read very well, and I was terrified that they would ask me to read something. And I literally could not say the word anonymity for over six months. So I'd always hide out in the back of the room. About two years of sobriety under my belt, we had a speaker show up that was really funny. You know, it's very theatrical in California. Oh, he was really funny, and everybody started laughing, and all of a sudden I realized that I was laughing. I had a huge belly laugh. I was just laughing and laughing. But after I stopped laughing, I found myself thinking, well, that might be funny for you, but there is nothing, absolutely nothing in my background I could ever laugh at. And about 15 years ago, I don't know how many years ago, um, I was speaking in Seal Beach. It was only my second time to ever give an AA talk. I never shared my story until I was 11 years sober. It was just too terrifying for me to walk up to a podium. Um, anyway, it was my second time to share my story. And my daughter was in and out of AA, in and out of AA, trying to get sober. And this was towards the end of her drinking when she did get permanent sobriety. She heard that I was talking, and so she brought some of her program girlfriends over to my house to have coffee before the meeting and she proceeded to tell them my drunk log and for some reason it was a little funny funnier coming out of her mouth than out of my head and of course she's telling these girls all about the minister <laughs> and I just never thought about how this stuff looks through the eyes of a nine-year-old she was nine years old when I was seeing this minister so she's telling these girls, I'm dragging her off to church every day. She's learning things like the Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule. I'm constantly preaching all this religious stuff to her. She comes home from school at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. She opens the bedroom door, and they're naked in bed with her mom, was the married minister of the church. When she first said this, I just felt the shame, guilt, embarrassment, and I just looked at my daughter in the most sympathetic way. I said, God, honey, that had to be a terrible shock. <laughs> she just looked at me. I'm going to start laughing before I can say it. She, <laughs> she just looked at me and she said, no, Mom, I don't know what shocked me the most, seeing that minister naked or seeing his artificial leg on the floor. <laughs> Up until that time, I totally forgot he had this artificial leg. <laughs> it was a big leg, too. I don't know how I forgot it. <laughs> but in ways that were important, he was not disabled. <laughs> Sorry. One of my favorite steps before step... Aside from step 12 is the ninth step. The ninth step is what I call the freedom step. This is the step that truly freed me from the bondage of my past. And it's not a coincidence that in the big book, 
those promises come after step nine. It says before you're halfway through, you're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. It says you won't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it and so on and so on. And I did not have to wait to get halfway through step nine, thank God, because it took me 12 years. That happened to me with my very first amends, and that was going back to that church and telling that minister I used to steal from the church funds. And he told me he knew that. And I set up a payment schedule to pay back the church. Then I had to tell him that I stole out of his wallet when he was in the shower. He told me he did not know that. So I made restitution to him. But the neat thing about this experience is he shared with me at that by the time I got to him, he had two years of sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. When he lost that leg in a motorcycle accident, he was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And he actually died on the operating table. He had one of those near-death experiences, which for him was his spiritual experience. And that's what led him into ministerial school and becoming a minister. And even he could not get sober in church. And I'm not putting down churches, and I'm not putting down the psychiatric effort, because the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous makes it real clear that this program owes a lot to both of these institutions. And in the big book, it says, if you need professional help, do not hesitate to seek it. But I, I have to tell you, for me, it was all about that miracle that happens when one drunk reaches out to another drunk. So I'm uh, kicked out of this uh, church and living in an apartment in Long Beach, lights, gas, had been turned off for a long time, but I still had a telephone. It was a working priority. I had to have a phone. I got this call at 11 o'clock at night, and I could not believe the man on the other end of this phone. It was my real dad. And he wanted to make amends for not being in my life. He wanted to get to know me, and he wanted to get to know my daughter. So he offered me an opportunity to move to Colorado to get to know his whole family. And I did not want to go. I had no desire to get to know him. But mostly, I didn't want to move to the snow. But at that point in my life, I didn't have anywhere to go except for out on the streets. And deep down inside, I did have this little hope if I did this geographic, maybe I could change. So I made that move to Colorado, and I lived there for three months. And in that three-month period, this man and his family could not wait to get me out of Colorado. In that three-month period, I ended up having affairs with the bus drivers on the way over there, getting pregnant, having an abortion, falling down the stairs and breaking my leg, ripping off his medicine cabinet, ripping off his booze cabinet, and ripping off his money. So they literally kicked me out of the state of Colorado. I'm going to tell you how I broke that leg. Obviously, I was drunk, and I lived in a second-floor apartment. It was snowing, and we had an ice storm, so the, the stairs were icy. The liquor stores in my area closed at 12, so I had to make my final liquor run before the stores closed. And I'm walking down these stairs, and I'm hanging onto the railing with my right hand, and my 9-year-old daughter's on the left side of me trying to hold me up. All of a sudden, another, another second-floor apartment that was directly in front of me the door opened, and out of that door walked a priest. I don't know what he was doing there at 12 o'clock at night. Uh, you know, maybe he's like my minister. I don't know. Or he's giving last rites or something. But he had the collar, the robe, everything. He's definitely a man of God. And I'm very mad at God. I'm mad at God because I just seduced his minister and ripped off his church. So now in my alcoholic thinking, I'm mad at God. And I let go of the railing with my right hand, and I 
flipped up my middle finger and I screamed at him, F you God. And I immediately fell down the stairs and broke my leg. <laughs> my daughter told me that is the day she started believing in and punishing God. <laughs> but today we both know it had nothing to do with God. I fell because I was drunk. But my, my real dad was second on my list of amends to make when I started making my amends. And I, I wrote this man a letter, and I told him I was sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I wanted to make restitution for my behavior up there, and I sent him a check trying to set up a payment schedule. And basically what he and the family did is they sent me the check back with a little note that said they didn't want my money, and they never wanted to hear from me again. I stayed sober, of course, because I was working with the sponsor. But it hurt. It did hurt, and I really, I really, really wanted to make this right. And so with my sponsor's encouragement, on every birthday and on every Father's Day, I would send him an appropriate card, and I would tell him I'm still sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I still wanted to make restitution for my behavior up there. I did this for six or seven years, and he never acknowledged me. Finally, the last card I sent, within a week, I got a reply back, and I cannot tell you how excited I was when I saw the return address on that envelope. I ripped open the envelope, and the only thing that was in it was a picture of his tombstone and the obituary out of the newspaper. And that's, that was the family's way of telling me not to bother trying anymore. And there are no words to express the kind of pain I felt. You would have thought I knew him my whole life, and I didn't, but I took it real, real hard. And the people in Alcoholics Anonymous pointed out to me I don't make amends for approval. The big book tells me I don't make amends to be forgiven. I make amends to clean up my side of the street. I make amends to stay sober. So all I can tell you is that the actions I took worked because not once, not even once, was I ever tempted to drink over that rejection. I'm just so sorry. He didn't get to know the person I am today because I know he would have been proud. So I'm kicked out of um, this church. Now I'm kicked out of a state, living back in Long Beach, California, across the street from Franklin Junior High. Franklin Junior High is a gang-related school. My daughter's now 14 years old, and she's running with a very dangerous gang. And I'm doing awful, humiliating, embarrassing things to my daughter. But I'm not only embarrassing my daughter. I was embarrassing this entire gang. Uh, <laughs> lived in an apartment. Um, Lights, gas, and telephone had all been turned off for a long time. And um, anyway, they had all been turned off for a long time. And I would do embarrassing things to my daughter, like um, I drank vodka down so much so fast that I stopped breathing. I had to be rushed to the hospital and brought back to life. I do things like drink down some wine and crawl across the street butt naked to the school ground and warn my daughter and her gang friends not to come home. The house was possessed with evil spirits. Now, that's the kind of stuff that I did that makes me wish to God I was a blackout drinker. But I'm not a blackout drinker. I get to, I get to remember. Somebody told me that about that stop breathing and being rushed to the hospital was a blackout. And I said, I don't think so. I think dead on arrival is a little bit different from a blackout when you have to be brought back to life. But anyway, this experience of my drinking that vodka down like that really scared me. You know, I, 
now I know I'm going to die out there if I keep drinking. And I didn't want to die out there. And I especially didn't want to do to my daughter what had always been done to me. I mean, all the ambulances, all the police, all the fire trucks. I mean, just all the drama. There was always so much drama. I didn't want to do that to her. So I finally started listening to my daughter because my daughter used to tell me on a daily basis, she would say, Mom, it's the alcohol, and if you wouldn't drink, you wouldn't do those things. She said, just smoke pot. So <laughs> this is my only experience smoking pot. But I was trying really hard not to drink that day, and I don't have any friends of my own, so I smoked this pot with my daughter and her friends. And afterwards, we're walking down the street, and I have on these tight, tight jeans, and I have my hands shoved down in my pocket, my pockets. And I don't know if I tripped over my foot or tripped on a crack, but I tripped, and I just started to go down. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been on pot, but I have to tell you, for me, it was different. You know, first of all, I had the feeling that I was going down in slow motion. I had the sensation that the cement was coming up at my face. And no matter what I did, and I tried so hard, I could not get my hands out of my pockets. So you've got to picture a grown woman laying with her face smashed in the cement. Her hands are still sticking out of her pockets. And all the gang members around me were laughing hysterically. They were absolutely hysterical. And as I laid there, I could hear them laughing. And as I heard that laughter, I had that moment of clarity. I knew right then and there, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that pot was not the answer. <laughs> and I went right back to my drinking. And I drank at the same pace for a while longer. But what finally happened for me, that you can read about in the big book on page 151, it talks about facing those hideous four horsemen. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. I woke up on my front room floor one more time, right in the middle of the, those four horsemen. And I couldn't do it another day. I just couldn't do it another day. I was naked laying on that floor, and I was in a puddle of fluid. I don't know what the fluid was. I had all these Doritos all over me. It was just so disgusting. I took those first three steps, and I didn't even know what the first three steps were, but I knew that I was powerless over alcohol, and my life had never, ever been manageable. I already believed that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I just knew he wouldn't because of what I'd done to the church. And this was my way of turning my will and my life over to the care of God as I got on my knees, and I just said, God, Please, I don't care how you do it, but please just get me sober. And I managed get, to get to a telephone. I called a prayer line that was affiliated with the church I was in, and I asked them to pray for me. Because in my mind, I thought if God wouldn't listen to my prayers because of what I'd done to the church, maybe God would listen to their prayers. And they prayed for me for 30 days, and within 30 days I was sober. And it's just a series of God coincidences that landed me in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because I would never have come to AA, but I forgot to tell God that. Um, <laughs> my mom was in and out of AA, and she proved to me that it didn't work. And she ran around with some really sleazy AA men. There, and there's also sleazy AA women. There's a lot of people in meetings that just take up space. They don't care about the 12 steps. They don't care about the 12 traditions. All they care about is scoring. And uh, that's the kind of people my mom hung out with. I was about 12 or 13 years old, and a couple of these AA men made serious passes at me. 
That's what I thought about the men in Alcoholics Anonymous, so I would never have come here. But thank God for the men in Alcoholics Anonymous that latched on to me. I was in the parking lot. Somebody gave me a ride. It was the mayor of Signal Hill. Uh, was coming by my mom's house to try and talk her into going to a meeting. She wouldn't go, and I happened to be there, so he talked me into it, and I, I, I went. And uh, they made me wait out in the parking lot. He ran across the street and bought two beers, brought them back, and made me drink them. Because I was trying so hard not to drink, I, I was really just about in delirium tremens. And they knew that. I didn't know that, but they knew that. They made me drink those two beers, and it, it settled me down enough that I could sit through that meeting. And that's the last drink I ever had, and that was on uh, November 10th, 1979. However, I don't celebrate my birthday until January because of those uh, diet pills. You know, we have no opinion on outside issues. As far as I was concerned, that was an outside issue. Ten years of sobriety, I got a new sponsor, and she really didn't care. So they changed my... They changed my, my sobriety date by three months, but I used to celebrate it in November. Um, <clears throat> now it all seems so silly. But that meeting, if I had gone to any other meeting, I don't know if I would have stayed. But there was a girl there that shared my story. She said that she didn't drink till later on in life. She practiced her disease of alcoholism way before she ever took that first drink. drink. She did it in the form of compulsive overeating and amphetamine abuse. But the one thing she shared, and this is the reason why I stayed, is she said her whole life growing up, some kids want to be doctors, some kids want to be lawyers, and all she ever wanted to do when she grew up was just not to be an alcoholic like her mom. And I started to cry, and I cried throughout the rest of the meeting, and I, I just couldn't stop. That's the first time I ever felt like I belonged anywhere, and I always, always felt safe when I was in a meeting. So I'm six months sober, and I'm on my ninth step. My sponsor tells me I have to get a job. I have to be fully self-supporting to my own contributions. I don't know how to work. I went out there, and I got my first job, and that's where I learned how to work. And I don't hear people with the kind of goals that I had when I got sober. I mean, when I finally got a job, all I wanted to do, I wanted so bad to just work a job for a whole year and not miss a day. I wanted to be the best employee that I could be. I wanted to be the best mother I could be. I had all these goals that I don't hear people talk about today. But anyway, that job, I learned how to work. I learned how to get there every day, how to get there on time, how to not leave early, how to only take a 30-minute lunch break. I did not know how to do those things. I learned them here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I worked my first job full-time for eight years. I stayed on another two years part-time after I took another full-time position. So I was there for a total of 10 years. When I left that job, I'd worked myself up to assistant administrator. In that first eight-year period, I went back to high school. I was not smart enough to pass a GED. They didn't have all those classes for GEDs. So I had to go back to high school. I graduated from high school in 1985, and I was 36 years old. I graduated with a cap, a gown, a real ceremony, and 450 18-year-olds. <laughs> Thank you. That was such a dark secret for me. I, I can't believe I shared from the podium. <laughs> anyway, what I did for the next six years is I went to work for a musical theater uh, company industry, 
And this uh, was a multi-million dollar corporation. They were equity, which means union, which means they dealt with big, big major stars. Started out in the bottom uh, in the accounting department, went back to school, and within a period of time I worked myself up to business manager of this multi-million dollar corporation. And as business manager, I dealt with millions of dollars. And honest to God, when I got to this program, I didn't have a clue how many zeros were in a million dollars. I have participated in union negotiations. I've been invited into some of the homes of some of the most famous people you see, even today, on stage, screen, and TV. Sometimes I see myself in a picture with a very famous person, and I still get overwhelmed. And I, I just think, how did I ever get from the gutters of Long Beach to being invited into some of these places? And how that happened is I work the last part of that 12th step, and I applied these principles in all my affairs. I want to just share with you about um, how I came to terms with the God I have in my life today. I told you about my daughter's rape and how I struggled with God. One thing I had a big problem with was a sentence in the big book, and it used to be one of my favorite pages. It's page 449 in the third edition, and it's page 417 in the fourth edition. And that sentence that I had so much trouble with said, absolutely nothing in God's world happens by mistake. Clancy says alcoholism is a disease of perception. I'm still an alcoholic. I still get my disease of perception because I perceive that to mean that if nothing in God's world happens by mistake, that that had to be an act of God. It had to be an act of God, and I wanted to leave Alcoholics Anonymous, and I wanted to leave God because I knew I did not want any part of a God that could operate like that. And thank God for for Bill Honeycutt. He just took me by the hand and he said, Michael, God is good and good is God. And if it's not good, it's not of God. He said, man has free will. That man was acting on his free will and your daughter was just a victim. He said, if man didn't have free will, we wouldn't all be sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had a spiritual release and I knew he was telling me the truth. But I still had so much trouble with that sentence in the big book. I sponsor a lot of women. And because I have the story I have, I sponsor a lot of women who have suffered major tragedies. And one of these women whose tragedy was worse than my daughter's, it's too gruesome to tell you from the podium, she made the mistake of saying to me, well, it must be God's will because in the big book it says absolutely nothing in God's world happens by mistake. I went off on her like a crazy woman, and I started screaming at her that that's not in the first two editions of this book. This isn't in the first 164 pages. It wasn't written by the first 100 alcoholics. Slammed the book down, and I noticed that she was crying. I made her cry. I realized when I saw her crying that I have a resentment. I have a resentment about something in the big book, and this resentment's not only hurting me, now it's hurting other people. And because it was hurting other people, I came to a place of being willing to give it up. And I prayed daily for a very long time for God to just help me with that sentence. And I was with my sponsor, Polly, in a little meeting in Long Beach, and she was the speaker, and she was sharing about a tape out by Clancy, and it's called Alcoholism, Disease of Perception. I'm right in that meeting when she said the words, 
disease of perception, I had the biggest spiritual encounter that I have ever had. I couldn't see anything else in the room. Everything was like a, a white fog, and I couldn't hear another word Polly said. I had that inner voice talk to me, and it was loud, and it was clear. It says, Michael, you know what happens in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous is part of God's world. What happens when you're working those 12 steps is part of God's world. The progression of all good is part of God's world. What happened in that car nine years ago was part of man's world. And at that point, I was able to separate man's world from God's world. And I was able to come to terms with that sentence in the big book. I can say right now that absolutely nothing in God's world happens by mistake. That's what got me to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is God's world. After I had that spiritual experience through a real weird series of coincidences, I found myself sitting down at a table having dinner with Dr. Paul, who wrote that sentence in the big book. And I was at such peace, I did not have to go off on him and tell him all about my resentment, because I knew it, it didn't matter what he meant when he wrote it. What mattered was how I perceived it. And sometimes I have to work on that perception, so whatever that perception is, it can work in my life. And that might not work for you, and that's okay. Because I truly believe that God works for each one of us at our own level of understanding. I once heard if you take one step towards God, God takes ten steps towards you. And in this lifetime, as we know it, we will never, ever reach God's level of understanding. But once we're on a spiritual path, God does not want to lose one of us. So he comes to each one of us and works for each one of us at our individual level of understanding. And that's why what works for you might not work for me. What works for me might not work for you. But the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous is whatever you believe, it will work within the 12 steps. Since that day, um, Paul has heard my talk. <laughs> we talked at lots of conventions together. Um, we lost him a few years ago, but when I share this story, I still feel his presence. What he told me about that sentence is he did not mean anything like that when he wrote that sentence. He told me he was not thinking of man's inhumanity to man. He said, my spiritual experience was the best explanation he could think of as to why evil exists on this world. And I'm so thankful I paid attention to something I read in the 12 and 12. It said restraint of pen and tongue. Because when I found out this man was alive, I used to think everybody in the big book was dead. When I found out this man was still alive, I cannot tell you how many countless times I sat down and I started to write him a letter. And I guess it would be equivalent to a hate letter. And tell him exactly what I thought about him and exactly what I thought about that sentence. And if I would have followed through, I would have missed out on this gift. Because this man became a gift in my life. And he gets lots of, he used to get lots of letters about that sentence. And he would get lots of phone calls about that sentence, all from people who have suffered tragedies. And what he did is he just gave him my phone number. <laughs> anyway, I want to thank you for allowing me to be here. And I just want to assure everybody that um, even though I have stuff going in my life, like my daughter dying of cancer, I still know that I have been catapulted in that fourth dimension. Bill talks about it on page 8, and then he talks about it on page 25. My favorite page is 8, because on page 8, he gives you a description of what that fourth dimension is like. 
and at any given time I can sit down and think about happiness, and I do know happiness when I'm with you. I think about peace, and I have peace. Most of the time I have peace. But the most important thing that I have today, the absolute most important thing I have today, is I have that feeling of usefulness. Thank you. Thank you, honey. Is it over here?